once there was a little boy who was uh, in big church and sitting next to his dad. And when it came time in the service for communion, the trays were being passed. And when the tray came to him, he put the little piece of bread in his mouth and he had a little sip from the communion cup. And, and just before the tray was passed on, he leaned over and whispered to his dad. He said, Dad, can I have some more? <laughs> I think there's a sermon in that. I really do. Especially when we consider all that the bread and the juice symbolize the very life of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the humility of Christ, the love of Christ, who suffered even to the point of death, death on a cross for us, for me. When we think about it in those terms, it's more than just a childish question. It's a very important question, isn't it? Do I want more? Do I want more of Christ? Do I really want what John the Baptist once said? He must become greater and I must become lesser. And am I willing to let him do his transforming work in my life so that that can happen? And am I willing to cooperate with the commitments of that question? Do I want more? Can I have some more? Well, that's what's going on in the scripture reading that Maggie shared with us here just moments ago. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. This Advent season, we have been in this magnificent chapter from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this morning, we're going to really kind of conclude this section, this great Christ hymn in verses 12 through 18. Verses which call us to the remarkable life of wanting more of Jesus. A life that stands out. A life that is a beacon of light. A lighthouse kind of life. The kind of lights that Paul's talking about here in the scripture that we read, specifically in verse 15, shining as lights in the world. They're not, we're not talking about Christmas lights here. We're not talking about a leisurely stroll down Candlestick Lane. That's not what's going on in these verses here. These are navigational lights. These are the kinds of lights that you'd see at maybe, well, at an airport. In Paul's day, it would have been their lighthouse types of lights. Lights that help you navigate on the rocky shoals of life. Those kinds of lights. Lights that are necessary in a dark and foggy and lost world. That's the kind of light that Christ wants to shine in and through us. That's what it means to want more of Jesus. Navigational lights. Lights that give direction and that show people ultimate reality. Jesus himself. So 
So the question then is, how does that clear and remarkable and blameless and innocent life for Christ occur? How does that happen? What are the commitments involved in such a life? And there are three commitments that Paul discusses here in these verses that I want us to consider this morning. And I'll simply just put it this way. Here they are. Commitment number one, work out. Commitment number two, grumble not. Commitment number three, hold fast. Work out, grumble not, hold fast. Those are the commitments required for the life which wants more and more of Jesus so that Jesus' light can flow through that life, the life of that individual, the life of that church, so that others will see the glory of God. Work out, grumble not, Hold fast. Well, let's start with that first workout. That's in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is such a potentially misunderstood verse because it sounds like Paul is saying something like continue to work for your salvation. But that's not what Paul says, is it? If, if, if that were the case, Christianity would be like every other do more, try harder religion. So is there a switch going on here? Absolutely not. Let's take a look at the context. Verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, my loved ones, church family, Paul says, So he's talking about brothers and sisters who are already in God's family, God's kingdom. And his point is that in verse 15, you might be blameless and innocent children. Not that you might become, not that you might merit, not that you might earn, but rather, look, this is who you are. In Christ, you are the beloved of God. In Christ, you are children. So whatever this means, it doesn't mean that you are to do something so that you can earn, attain, or otherwise merit a relationship with God. Look over uh, on page 981 in your church Bibles. If you just look over to the next column in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So it's not about working for. Paul's not talking about working for. He's talking about working out. Well, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means to actively participate and humbly cooperate with all that God does to make you more like Christ. I'll say that again. To work out means to actively participate and humbly cooperate with all God does to make you more like Christ. Work out. Work out. I mean, let's just be ridiculous for a minute here. I don't go to the gym and as a part of my workout class, sit on the bench and watch my instructor work out. That's not how, oh, that it would be that way. But that's not it. That's silly. But working out is active participation and humble cooperation. And so what Paul is doing here in verses 12 and 13, that's just a summary of what he has said 
since the beginning of chapter 2. So when Paul says, work out your own uh, salvation with fear and trembling, that phrase fear and trembling, that's another word for humility. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, be of the same mind and have the same love. Chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, look out not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Chapter 2, verse 4. Have the mindset of Christ, who in humility served and suffered and died on a cross. So all of those directives are compressed into this very tight phrase, work out your own salvation. Work out. In other words, finish the job. Complete your calling. Uh, those of you in academics, don't turn in an incomplete term paper. Finish it. Be all in. Don't do something halfway. Actively participate. Humbly cooperate. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, uh, for over 50 years, has been a quadriplegic in a swimming accident. And uh, God has used her in amazing ways. Here's what she uh, once wrote. This is the only time in history when I get to fight for God. This is the only part of my eternal story when I'm actually in the battle. Once I die, I'll be in celebration mode, in a glorified body, in a whole different set of circumstances. But this is my limited window of opportunity, and I'm going to fight the good fight for all I'm worth. Actively participate, humbly cooperate. That's what it means to work out. Church family, Christianity is not just about feeling good that Jesus has forgiven my sins. It, it is about receiving and putting into play the responsibilities of being a child of the Father. It, it is about being a partaker, a participant of grace. That's chapter 1, verse 3. Partaker of of grace. Um, someone once put it this way. Grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. So earning is an attitude. Earning is a mindset. But effort is an action. Effort is an activity fueled by the grace of God at work in my life. And just as a 747 burns fuel for takeoff and flight, uh, grace is the fuel that we need to burn for our life in Christ. So, so, so grace is more than liquid paper blotting out my sins. Grace is fuel for life in God's realm. So, so grace is more than just spiritual. Grace is mental. Grace is emotional. Grace is physical. Grace is intellectual. Grace is moral. Grace is social. I need grace to live. I need grace to love. I need grace to serve. I need grace to, to preach. I need grace to distribute food for the hungry. I need grace to parent. I need grace. It, it takes more grace to live a holy life than it does to cover sin because every holy thing I do for God is sustained by his grace. 
Work out your own salvation, for it is, verse 13, for it's God who works in you. So God is the great initiator. God is the great energizer to will and to act according to his good purpose. The Apostle Peter says much the same thing in 2 Peter 1, 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Just let that soak in for just a minute. For the godly life God wants us to live, he, he's given us everything we need to do that. And so, so Christmas grace is more than just dealing with, with sin. It's about becoming more and more like Christ. And, and so when we understand the full dimension of grace, we understand that grace is more than that Christ saved me. See, our salvation, sometimes we think we just let salvation go with, you know, yeah, I received Christ and I checked the box and then I get to go on. No, no, no. Properly understood, our deliverance from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, Christ saved me. He saved me from the penalty of sin. Christ is saving me from the power and influence of sin. And then there will come a day, and Paul talks about this a little later on, when Christ will one day rescue us, deliver us, save us from the presence of sin, you see. So Christ saved me. He is saving me. He will save me. It's all. It's all. God's, God's working. God's taking initiative. God is doing something in my life to change me so that more and more of my life will resemble the life of Christ. So change truly is possible. We don't have to stay the same. We don't have to, we don't have to feel helpless and hopeless. This will never get better. No, that's not what this says. This says that God is working in you to will so that to change your desires and so that your activities will be more in, on his will, not my will, you see? Because every time I do my will, I get in trouble. I want his will. I want his will. And, and do you know how to know when God is at work in your life? Do you know how to know? When I am no longer uptight, about not getting my way. Okay? Think about that for a minute. I, I, I know that God is doing something in my life, day by day, moment by moment, when I no longer get as uptight about not getting my way. See? See, so next week, somewhere, someone is going to get uptight because they didn't get what they wanted under the Christmas tree. Right? Okay? Well, you know what? We tend to carry our Christmas trees with us, don't we? We don't just put them out that curbside here for the city to pick up. We want to take them with us. And we want what we want underneath the tree. And you know God is doing a work in your life when, when I'm no longer uptight about, about, about laws broken in the kingdom of Randy. See, what about you? Work out. Cooperate humbly, 
participate actively. That's what workout means. Well, that kind of takes us to that little Christmas tree image there, kind of takes us to the second commitment regarding the, the, the clearest evidence that God is working in and through our life. Work out, grumble not. Grumble not. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I like languages, and the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and so sometimes words, you know, once you sound out the words, they kind of sound like what the meaning is, right? And so here is what grumble means. Here's the word in the original. It's the word, I'm going to teach you Greek today. Here it is. It's a great word. Gongusmas. Gongusmas. On three, let's say that. One, two, three. Gongusmas. Let's do that again. One, two, three. Gongusmas. Gongusmas. Grumble. Grumble. Does it sound like it? Grumble. Do all things without gongusmasing and disputing. Now think about that for just a minute. Of all that the apostle could have said about letting the light of Christ shine in and through our lives, he said this. He said this. And let's keep in mind the context here. Paul has just taken us to this vista, this beautiful Christmas hymn, this Christ hymn uh, where Jesus is enthroned because Christmas didn't begin in Bethlehem. Christmas began in heaven. Takes us to the highest height and then, and then he takes us to the valley of the abyss of the cross and then he takes us back up to heaven. Jesus reascent in his resurrection by the power of the Father. This, this stunningly beautiful Christ hymn. Uh, following this, we're just led and plopped right back into the everyday relationships of everyday speech. And the clearest indication that God is working in you and through you, the clearest sign that you have star power in a darkened and depraved world is that wherever you are, whomever you're with, no matter what time of day it is, no matter what circumstances are going on outside of you, or no matter what kind of rumbling is going on inside of you, do everything you do without one word of grumbling and one word of disputing. No gongusmas, Paul says. Gongus, grumbling. What does, what does grumbling mean? Grumbling means I deserve more. I deserve more. I've been here 29 years. I've been here 29 years. Don't you know who I am? And this is it? This is what I get? I deserve more. Huh? And disputing, so it's grumbling and disputing. Grumbling, I deserve more. Disputing, I know more. I, God, I. I know more. See, I mean, sometimes we just kind of have to hear those words out loud so that we can really get how silly they are. And, and not just silly, how awful they are. 
I mean, is there anything that more clearly reveals a healthy, mature, spirit-saturated heart than a heart that is without grumbling and disputing? And is there anything that more clearly reveals a diseased heart than a grumbling, disputing, I deserve more, I know more heart? Can you imagine one day, just one day, that is not marred in some way by grumbling? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine waking up in the morning and not being filled with the pressure of all the things you really don't want to do and a little bit of grumbling inside of you that you don't want to do them? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine lying down at night and your heart is not filled with complaint about what your day was like? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a parent and not complaining about your children? Can you imagine being a child and not complaining about your parent? Can you imagine being a worker and not complaining about your boss? Can you imagine being a boss and not complaining about your employees? Can you imagine being a citizen and not complaining about your government? That strains the imagination, doesn't it? <laughs> Man, I am wor- I'm, I'm in working on that... <laughs> Can you imagine a government that doesn't complain? (laughs) Lord Jesus, help us. Could it be, could it be that in in that fog of gongoose moss, that, that the thing that sets us apart as citizens of another kingdom is a life without complaint, a life without grumbling, a life without murmuring. And could it be, church family, that this thing that we assume is a little sin is really not a little sin at all? Hmm. Pastor Crawford Lawrence once said that you are one decision away from losing the ability to lead. And grumbling and disputing is a poor decision. These words echo Israel in the wilderness. The God of all creation had just rescued his people and had just tossed around the most powerful man on the face of the earth like a toddler with a rag doll. God didn't merely humble Pharaoh. He broke him. He left him and his nation in shambles. I mean, Israel, you know this? Israel left Egypt with their pockets stuffed with Egyptian gold. And yet Israel's response to this spectacular deliverance was mainly not praise and worship and gratitude. Instead, it was gongusmas. It was grumbling. We want water. We don't have enough water. Moses, get us some more water. We don't have, we're tired of manna. I'm tired of manna. We've had manna burgers. We've had manna bagels. We've had we, manna pancakes. We're tired of manna. We want quail. Give us quail. And grumbled, grumbled. Moses, who died and made you boss? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I, I mean, talk about spiritual amnesia. They had forgotten God's gracious and miraculous deliverance. 
So, so grumbling and disputing is not just being hangry. Not just low blood sugar. It's a disease of the heart. It's faithlessness. It says, God, I know better than you. If only you would follow my plan. And, and listen, every time we grumble and every time we dispute, we are no better than Israel. <laughs> We're no better than Israel. Um, Tim Kreider is an essayist. And he wrote some words about grumbling and disputing that just cut me. And so, here they are. He once wrote, If you're anything like me, you spend about 87% of your mental life winning imaginary arguments that are never actually going to take place. Huh? <laughs> I can see you're being cut too. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's like, wow. So true of me. Oh Lord, I need help. You make up little stories to explain misunderstandings and conflicts, starring yourself as an innocent victim and casting your antagonist as a villain driven by malice. If you've ever made the mistake of committing your half of these arguments to print or email, you have probably learned, as I have, that the other person's half of the argument fails to conform to the script you wrote for them. Can I get an amen? Man. It seems like most of the fragments of conversation you overhear in public consist of rehearsals for or reenactments of just such speeches. Shrill, injured litanies of injustice, affronts to common sense and basic human decency, almost too grotesque to be born. And, and, and he does X, Y, Z all the time. And she does X, Y, Z all the time. I've just had it. You don't even have to bother eavesdropping. Just listen for that unmistakable, high, whining tone of incredulous aggrievement. Sounds like we're all telling ourselves the same story over and over. How they tried to cheat me over, but I showed them... And now for the really cutting part. Grumbling and disputing feel good at first, but over time they, they rot our hearts out. And it's more insidious than most vices because we don't consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as a disagreeable stimuli like pain or nausea, rather than admit that it's a shameful kick we eagerly indulge again and again. Wow. And then Tim Kreider closes with this really thoughtful question by um, author David Foster Wallace. He once wrote, aren't there parts of ourselves that are just better left unfed? Hmm. God has made us partakers of grace. That's what these verses say. He has scattered us everywhere. 
He scattered us everywhere, the halls of a hospital, the emergency room, a lawyer's office, university library, school classroom, grocery store, on the streets of the city, at the mall, in the coffee shop, at the stadium, in the morning, afternoon, and evening. His light shines through us, his children. You're in the family. You bear the name. You represent the king. We are to speak the king's speech. Language, speech that shines light in a dark world. Therefore, therefore, grumbling, disputing, whining, complaining like Israel of old, that's not the king's speech. Complaining is the primary language of a puny little empire of one. And that's why that little boy's question to his dad is so meaningful. Can I have some more? I need more. I need more Jesus. Maybe you've been listening here and you're going, how could I ever live a complaint-free life? It's by knowing that Jesus lived that life on your behalf and my behalf. Because if anybody had any right to say, I deserve better, was it not our Lord? But he never did because it was his joy to do the Father's will. He did that for us. He was accomplishing righteousness on our behalf so that we could stand in this broken, selfish, dark world and say, Lord, help me, fill me with your life, fill me with your wisdom, fill me with your mind, fill me with your word, knowing that he will never turn his back on us, knowing that he will always turn toward us with more grace, and he won't stop, he won't quit, he will not relent until one day, Our mouths are filled with nothing but praise. And our hearts are filled with nothing but worship. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, church family, work out and grumble not and hold fast. Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. Again, Paul is echoing the exodus and God's provision of manna, which sustained the people up to the land of promise. Uh, Manna was the symbol that God, who had begun a good work, would be faithful to complete it. So, So the word hold fast here means remember. Remember. And God's saying the same thing to us. He graciously reminds us to hold fast, to remember, to to remember his fingerprints all over our lives. Do you remember this uh, over this year? Do you remember that? Remember how God protected you from making a shipwreck of your life? Do you remember how God graciously let you grow up in a godly family? Do you remember how God protected you while growing up in your ungodly family? Do you remember how God awakened you to the ugliness of your sin? Do you remember how you walked away from that terrible car crash? Do you remember how your wife, father, or brother survived the cancer? Do you remember how God kept you when they didn't? Do you remember how you had mentors and key friends to guide you in your faith? Do you remember how God sustained you during that season of unemployment? 
Remember how when you had no money, an envelope just showed up in the mail with exactly the amount you needed? You remember that? You remember how the gospel came alive as it never had? You remember. Remember. Hold fast. Because our destiny is the day of Christ. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that, so that's the part that one day God will deliver us from the very presence of sin. And that's why we sing that Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come. Read the lyrics of that hymn because it's not talking about the first coming. See, this Advent season is rich because it, but we look back at the coming of Christ in Bethlehem, but that hymn calls us to look forward to the day when Christ will come gloriously, royally, when Jesus himself will appear to remake heaven and earth. What would this week look like if a thousand lights, a thousand beacons broke out and illuminated this foggy world. God did not gather 1,047 of us here last week so that we could simply say we had over 1,000 in church. <laughs> he brought us together so that we would work out what he's working in and shine. Shine. When the Magi came to Jerusalem, they declared, we've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Well, it was a star that brought them to the baby Jesus. And that's why they'd come. They, they, they didn't come just to see a, a, a mere baby. They'd come to see a king. And a star guided them. And a star lifted their eyes. And a star gave them direction. And a star brought them to their destiny. And we have that opportunity as a kingdom community, individually and corporately. God has assigned us the vocation of lighting it up, shining as a star in a dark world. And let me be clear, to shine like stars doesn't mean strive to be a celebrity for Jesus. It means let Jesus' life and light shine toward you so that when they see you, they think of him. When they see you, they think of him. And that's why Paul says, be blameless and pure. Then you will shine like stars. Work out. Grumble not. Hold fast. Let, let your life be so remarkable that others can see the heart and life of Christ through your life. And, and they get curious about the God you worship. And having seen your life, and having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, may this world, like that child in communion, say, can I have more? <laughs>